0: Hello, welcome to a brand new episode of the Churchology Podcast. As usual, I'm your host, Mark Combs. Today on the show, we're talking to Oz Guinness about his brand new book, The Magna Carta of Humanity, Sinai's Revolutionary Faith and the Future of Freedom. And We are almost at episode 50 of the Churchology Podcast. That's pretty cool to think about. One of the reasons we started this podcast is just to learn, to talk to people and to have, converse, to have conversations, to hear people. And well, we want to see how the church got to this moment, where the church is. And so any conversation, people are going to say things that you might, you know, I'm sure if you're a regular listener of this podcast or any podcast, people say things you, you agree with, you disagree with. There's always going to be different viewpoints in the conversation. Uh, today, as we talk to Oz, odds are pretty good. That's going to happen. And I just think this is a conversation that needs to happen. We talk about all kinds of different things. We talk about Christian nationalism. We talk, to, we talk about whether or not America uh, was ever a, a Christian nation and, and what that means. And uh, we, just, we just talk about a lot of things uh, in this conversation that we need to talk about as the church. And so sit back, enjoy this conversation with Oz Guinness on today's episode of the Churchology Podcast. All right, well, today on the show, we are honored, excited to talk to Oz Guinness today. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Privileged to be with you. Uh, it's, it's a privilege to have you on. You uh, are, are here, you just released a brand new book, the Magna Carta of Humanity, Sinai's Revolutionary Faith, and the Future of Freedom, and I would love to hear, uh, you know, a little bit about what led you to write the book, if you don't care to go into some detail on it.
1: Well, this is my third book on American freedom, and in many ways, it's the most important because it's the most constructive. Everybody knows America's deeply divided today, but why? Social media, the coastals against the heartlanders, the nationalists over against the globe, various things are put forward. But I would argue the deepest division is between those who understand America and freedom from the perspective of the American Revolution, which, as you know, is largely biblical through the Reformation. And those who understand it through the perspective of the French Revolution and its heirs. Now, that division is incredibly important. It will be decisive for the future of America, and it will certainly be decisive for the future of the Christian church in this country. And yet many Christians really don't understand the problem.
0: Hmm, Yeah. You know, in the book, you you talk about uh, that America faces a crisis of freedom. And so could you unpack that? Maybe that's even a little bit of what you're talking about, that Christians just do not understand the problem that you're trying to highlight. What is that? What is that crisis?
1: Well, you know, St. Augustine's famous approach, that if you want to understand a nation, I'm putting it in modern terms, you don't look at the size of its population. You don't look at the strength of its army or the state of its economy. You look at what it loves supremely love. And I think there's no question, if you look at American history, I'm not American, I'm an outsider of Mara, what America loves supremely is freedom. Hmm. Now, you take freedom, though, you know well, say, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. You know, he says, in effect, who's bewitched you? You're following another gospel. You came to faith in Jesus through the gospel of grace, and you're following a gospel of works. And what I'm saying to America, put it simply, for pastors and others, who's bewitched you? Hmm. You originally had a view of freedom through the Reformation that came from the Hebrew scriptures, above Mm -hmm. all, Exodus and Deuteronomy, and you're now following views of freedom that come from secular sources and supremely on the radical left from the French Revolution, and they will be
0: disastrous. Yeah, can you give some examples of what those sources of freedom are that you say that we've shifted into following?
1: Well, currently we're talking about critical race theory and uh, justice as the Black Lives Matter and so on. Put it, but let's look deeper. There's a difference in sources. The American Revolution had its ultimate source in the Bible through the Reformation, and you think of Solo Scriptura the impact of the Reformation, the 17th century was called the biblical century. And what fascinated people was what they called the Hebrew Republic, what you see in Exodus and Deuteronomy. Whereas the French Revolution is rooted, sorry, the radical left is rooted in the ideas flowing down from the French Revolution. Everything like postmodernism, Sexual revolution, political correctness, identity politics, tribal politics, cultural Marxism, all of that comes from the French Revolution, not the American Revolution, two different revolutions. And you got to say bluntly, the left-wing revolutions have never worked, and the oppression never ends. And so Christians shouldn't be naive. They should wake up and look at it with open eyes. yeah. So there's the difference in sources, the Bible or the French Enlightenment. You could say it's a different view of humanity. As you know, the biblical view is very realistic because of sin. So you have James Madison, Federalist 51, coming from Witherspoon, a Scottish theologian, whereas the French Enlightenment is utopian. And obviously, out of the biblical revolution, you have checks and balances, and the separation of powers. The separation of powers comes from the Old Testament. People don't realize that. In other words, the Jews had the king, the priest, the prophet, what they call the three crowns of government. And that's just the beginning of some of the sources that come from the Bible and not from the French Revolution. You could go on down to the line. A huge difference is freedom. Freedom for atheists is the permission to do what you like. Freedom in the biblical sense is the power to do what you ought. So it's freedom within a covenant or what became constitution. Freedom within a framework. Mm -hmm. Our Lord, you will know the truth and the truth sets you free. You go on down the line. Another key difference is over religion. For the American Revolution, faith and freedom are both positive and they go together. For the French Revolution, freedom is anti-faith. And the French Revolution was anti-biblical, anti-religious, anti-Christian, and anti-clerical, and so on. And there was huge differences.
0: Yeah. And you you reference there a uh, uh- obviously, a major portion of your book, it's in the title, Sinai's Revolutionary Faith and the Future of Freedom. Can you unpack the, uh, the connection between the Covenant of Sinai and its significance in the American Revolution? Put it this
1: way. When the church became the official religion of Rome, which was 380, long before the Reformation, Historians say the church copied Roman structures and Greek ideas uncritically. Okay, So Rome had structures that were hierarchical. You had the Caesar and the consuls and the senators downwards. And the church had the pope and the cardinals and the bishops downwards. And it was a Catholic layman, Lord Acton, who made the famous remark that all power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. He was talking about the Catholic Church when he said that. Hmm. Now, the Reformation went back to the Bible. So not Luther, but Calvin, Zwingli, Bullinger, John Knox in Scotland, Oliver Cromwell. Oliver Cromwell said the Exodus was the direct parallel to what they were trying to do in the English Revolution. Now, you could Notice all the different things that come from Exodus. For example, covenant means the free consent of the, of the governed, freely chosen consent. The rabbis point out that's remarkable. When the master of the universe, as the rabbis put it, offers his way of life, the covenant, until three times The Israelites say, all of the Lord says, we will do. That is the origin of the consent of the government. Didn't come in the 17th century. Comes back in Exodus. And you could go on down the line. Or the idea of a morally binding pledge. A covenant, as you know well, covers the whole of life and lasts as long as you do. Take the marriage government till death do us part. So law, contract, is narrow, legal. Covenant is a morally binding pledge. It depends on a promise made and a promise kept. And someone is true to their word inspires trust. And when you have high trust, you can have high freedom. When you have low trust, you have to have high surveillance, cameras, and all sorts of things. And you can see all of that comes from covenantalism
2: Mm
1: -hmm. you could go on down the line
0: yeah and so so the idea tell me correct me if i'm wrong here so the idea is that much of what influenced the founders of america flows out of the hebrew scriptures those ideas is that correct yes you know i mentioned
1: the swiss the germans the dutch and the scots and the english now The English Revolution, the first of the big five, failed. The king came back. But what was the lost cause, as the historians put it, in England, became the winning cause in New England. So the Mayflower Compact is a covenant. When John Winthrop preached on the Arbella, he's talking about a covenant. And covenant was not only in New England churches which it was it was in new england marriages importantly and then equally importantly it was in new england townships so when john adams created the first constitution the first written one in america the massachusetts constitution he called it a covenant Mm -hmm. so the american constitution in the 18th century is a nationalized somewhat secularized form of covenant. Covenantalism is behind constitutionalism.
2: Yeah.
0: One of the things that that I've heard repeated often is that God has a covenant with America, uh, that God has a special unique covenant with America. And and so just in those examples that you gave. Well, I think that's rubbish. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Unpack the difference between the Sinai covenant and say the difference uh, in covenant the way that you you just used it in your previous examples.
1: Well, the Lord had a special covenant with Israel. Yeah, He was a party to the covenant. That's what's so remarkable. Hmm. Whereas the American covenant is a covenant or a constitution under God but we the people are making a covenant with each other. It's under God, but the Lord was not a partner to the American covenant or constitution. And that's a very dangerous thing to say because you can see the Puritan notion was that there was an individual calling and that there was also a national calling. But in their view, every nation had its own calling, not just America. And the trouble was when Americans started to talk like that, it became an American calling almost exclusively, and that grew into the idol of manifest destiny, which Mm. was both wrong and extremely dangerous. Yeah. So there is no known covenant between the Lord and America. There is a covenant with individual Christians in America, Mm. and of course, with the churches in America. But there's no known covenant with America as such. America at best is, as they used to put it, under God. Hmm. And you know that freedom from religion and Michael Newdown and people like that have even removed that. So the American Constitution has lost its touch with covenant and become simply a contract and a rather empty contract. So one of the challenges, I think, we have to re-explore the notion of covenant and bring back at least the human elements into it, the promise keeping and so on. Otherwise, the American constitution is finished. It's a parchment barrier that's increasingly the plaything of lawyers and judges and has absolutely no power that it was intended to have.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. and. I think that that's a really important statement that you just made there, just about the distinction between covenant with Sinai and the covenant that God has with his people and the way that people have used that language of covenant, because so, so, so many Christians, at least that I've heard and even online you see, just the talk that God has a covenant with America, a special covenant with America. Would you say that even from that, I would be interested to hear what your thoughts are that possibly from that idea flows out of much of what people might talk about or think when they talk about the, how uh, America, rather, is a Christian nation. And so America is a Christian nation because of the covenant that we have with God and we need to protect it as a Christian nation. Do you, do you, what, what are your thoughts on, on that? Are those, were those ideas connected? Does one flow from the other? What, do you, what are your thoughts? Well, we've got to be very clear today to be
1: true to what actually happened and then to be true to how people are hearing that in our time. Hmm. So America was never a Christian nation in any official, formal, established way. Now, were most Christians, I mean, sorry, most Americans Christian? Of course, 95% were out of the Reformation tradition, not just Christians but Protestant and Reform, what Edmund Burke called the dissenters of dissent. So most Americans were Christians. And equally seriously, all the founding ideas were Jewish and Christian. They Mm -hmm. were biblical, no question. But was America ever officially Christian? No. And the genius of the First Amendment lies there. In other words, if you look at the French Revolution in particular, or the growth of secularism earlier in Europe and now in America. Secularism in its aggressive modern form is a revulsion against the corruptions and oppression of established churches. And that's the genius of the First Amendment as Alexis de Tocqueville pointed out. Religion in this country was disestablished, no question. Hmm. But the key thing was it flourished Not despite it, but because of it. Mm -hmm. In other words, it didn't depend on state coercion. It depended on voluntary choice based on the dictates of conscience. And that underlies the whole rise of religious freedom and human rights. So that's incredibly important. And Christians have got to clear up their language. Because above all, our Jewish friends are scared stiff. When they hear Christian America talk, they hear establishment. And in Europe, that meant anti-Semitism, the persecution of the Jews. No, America is gloriously disestablished. Now, let's be clear. The problem today is we've smuggled secularism in the back door, so they are now semi-established. That's equally bad. So no religion. No worldview, no faith, no philosophy should be established. There should be freedom of choice, freedom of conscience, because mm-hmm. it's disestablished. That's terribly important. Yeah. As you know, you may be interested in this, too. You know, there's a lot of talk today about nationalism. Yeah. That has something of the same problem. <clears throat> Excuse me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, <laughs> I was, I was going to ask you about that. What, what do you make of... Uh, what do you make of Christian nationalism?
1: I've been accused of being a Christian nationalist. Okay. I'm wow. not, not even American <laughs> because of this confusion. Now, let's be clear. Mm. The normal Christian position is very close to George Orwell, who is an atheist, of course. But he would point out patriotism, love and gratitude and pride in a place a locality is good. Nationalism, my country right or wrong as an idol, is bad. Now, that's pretty in biblical terms. Whenever anything, my family or my calling or my nation become an idol, they're in the Lord's place. So, we are patriots. We are not nationalists. Nationalism is a terrible scourge. But I want to balance that. In today's climate, with globalism, now let's make a distinction between globalization, which is the expansion of human interconnectedness to a global level, that's good. That's a process, it's happened. For better or worse, it's happened. Globalism is the philosophy that exploits that and thinks of everything in terms of the global, not the local. So globalism is very dangerous, the new world order, global reset and all that. So people reacting against that mainly do so in the name of their own nation over against the global new world order. If they just said, I'm a patriot, I'm not following the the, the idol of nationalism. So certainly I would defend uh, strongly Americans right to patriotism and patriotism is not nationalism. And it's a very important point to stress over against the George Soros, the secular messianism of globalism. Hmm. So Christians who've now jumped on this and they attack every Christian who supports the nation as a nationalist, that's totally bogus. And you've got a lot of left-wing intellectuals who are doing that and it's rubbish and very dangerous. We are patriots. I'm an Irish and English patriot, but we gotta love our countries and criticize them when we believe they're not right Hmm. and where we believe they should be improved in certain ways. But Americans should be patriots, but never idolatrous nationalists. But you can't just lump everyone as a patriot into that bag
0: of nationalism. Yeah, I think that's one of the speaking as a pastor uh, and in conversations that I have with church leaders, that's one of the hardest areas to navigate uh, in this current moment is just that tension between Christian nationalism and a healthy patriotism. Mm-hmm. Could, could you comment on that? What, how, how do we I don't know if it's the right way to say it walk that not not really walk that line but but what is what is the difference between say Christian nationalism and and a healthy patriotism
1: well nationalism is my country right or wrong hmm. yeah yeah patriotism no i love my country and i want it to be right so you have to have the courage to say where you think it goes wrong but not just to be a naysayer but to have a clear understanding where it should be right Now, let me be more controversial still (laughs) and take the former president whose name we shall not mention. Hmm. Many Christians followed him uncritically. Hmm. Instinctively, they thought, because so many of his policies were good, which they were, and he stood against the dangers on the other side, which he did, that they would back him whatever. Hmm. Now, let's be clear. Let's just take one thing or two. His narcissism and his discourse, his tweets, were vile. So a biblical view of words, words are commitments. Hmm. Words have to respect truth. Words should respect our love, even for our enemies. So for Christians to use the social media, which immediately appeal to something quick and brief, and emotional, and to do so carelessly falls foul of what the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, called evil speech. Mm. And as you know, the rabbis point out that evil speech, whether gossip or insults, is tantamount to murder. Mm. And the former president had speech that was absolutely vile. Now, I say that many of his policies were terrific, And the other president we're talking about is much more civil in his speech, but has policies which are absolutely vile in their implications. So we've got to know by what standards we're judging the scriptures and our Lord. Mm -hmm. So we're willing to say all truth is God's truth. Whenever anyone stands for the truth, we stand for them. And if they don't, we oppose them. But far too many Christians on one side were uncritical. And on the other side, because these people weren't they just attacked the whole thing and threw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. And they were the ones who brought in the current situation, which on life and a
0: hundred other issues is even worse.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so Christians need to be at a place in culture where they can speak truth to both sides.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Put it this way. The scandal of the American church, we're in America. I'm not back in Western Europe. This is the one country in the Western world where Christians are a huge majority. Hmm. And yet, although we're called to be salt and light, in other words, engaging in a salty, light-bearing way, we're culturally non-influential and so many Christians are disengaged, they're irrelevant. Now compare that with our friends, I mean our friends, the Jewish people. They are under two and a half percent of America, 2.4. And yet that tiny percent, as one of the Jewish scholars says, they are less than the smallest statistical error in a Chinese consensus, Hmm. and yet they punch above their weight intellectually, culturally, financially. The Jews make an incredible difference. And we who are majority called to be salt and light are uninfluential. Shame on us. Now, the pastors are one of the keys to turning this round.
0: Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I would love to ask you, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely going to ask you to, to unpack uh, what you just teased there in just a minute. Uh, but one of the things, but before, before we move on, one of the things that you said over and over, and you say it over and over in the book, is just the significance that the scriptures played for the founders, the American Revolution. Can you help us to uh to make sense of the role that the scriptures played for the founders in the American Revolution and that sort of thing? And yet the reality of things like slavery and you know, just the, the horrors in the past of America. Can you help us to, to reconcile those?
1: Well, fortunately, we got great. Christian historians like George Mm -hmm. Marsden, Nathan Hatch, Mark Knoll, and so on. But let's be clear what I'm trying to say. The founders were very different in terms of faith. Mm. So Patrick Henry is what we call an evangelical. Uh, George Mason was a very orthodox Christian believer as an Anglican. George Washington A little vague about Jesus, to put it mildly, and rather (laughs) strong on the great architect and the invisible hand and so on, Mm. but definitely a Christian. Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin, you're moving towards deism and much more, and then Tom Payne, a free thinker. So they differ radically in terms of faith, and they are different somewhat in terms of religion and public life. But I would argue in terms of the link between faith and freedom, they're all the same. I call it the golden triangle of freedom. Doesn't matter which one you're talking about, with the exception of Tom Paine, all the others, including Franklin. Freedom requires virtue. Virtue requires faith and faith requires freedom. And like the recycling triangle that goes round and round, freedom requires virtue, which requires faith. Which requires freedom which requires virtue and so on so on that they're one but let's be clear what i was talking about was not the founding mm-hmm. i was talking about the 17th century <clears throat> and the beginning of the 18th and the yes, revival God. and the first awakening mm-hmm. so the roots of the american experiment are solidly biblical and broadly protestant i'm not, I'm not arguing for that today but you can see the Enlightenment ideas coming in. Thomas Jefferson, for quite a while, was enamored with the French Revolution until the reign of terror came and so on. He began to see it was a different one. But most of the framers were much clearer. So we've got to be discerning as to which box we put them in and so on. So they're different. But the roots of America going back, you know, to all that came earlier is undoubtedly, that's
0: what I'm talking about.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And just the ability to, like you said, I think one of the important things uh, is, is the ability to speak, uh, you know, to be thankful, have gratitude for, the, for, for our country, and, and also to speak about the wrongs that we see in it as well.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, let's be clear. Slavery was the evil. That was the hypocrisy and the evil <clears throat> unaddressed at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Now, it was obvious at the time. You had uh, say samuel johnson who was the creator of the world's first dictionary you know he, I, I haven't got a quote in front of me but it says something like how could those who are yelping about freedom be the drivers of slaves wow and in other words the hypocrisy was obvious an ocean away william wilberforce as you know the great abolitionist he pleaded first with thomas jefferson and later with james monroe to form what he called to Jefferson the concert of benevolence, so the English-speaking world would stand against slavery on the high seas, and Jefferson, of course, turned him down. So, let's be clear. Just as we have in the scripture, Genesis 1, creation, and God saw it was good, very good, and then Genesis 3, the fall so you see that the founding idea, the Declaration of Independence, incredible.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But the retention of slavery, evil, hypocritical from the start. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's what Lincoln was addressing in his time, calling for a new birth of freedom.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And what America needs today, in other words, you've got to clash here. Is slavery and is racism the original sin? Or is it the DNA? Now, of course, Christians, we say it's like the original sin in the fall. The radical left would say, Howard Zinn and the 1619 Project, this is America. So the whole thing is stained, xenophobic, racist, genocidal, you name it, throw it out. That's a radical choice. But I would say Americans have to choose today, just as Joshua said, choose today whom you will serve. And Moses said even earlier, I put before you good and bad, life and death, choose. Americans have got to choose. So Paul says you're choosing the gospel of grace or the gospel of works. Americans, are you choosing 1776 as it came from the Bible or are you choosing 1789? That's the Mm. choice. And that will shape the whole future of America. And it could well be incredibly influential in the future of humanity. In other words, we're at a civilizational moment. And coming out of the pandemic with all that happened last year, you can see clearly how this has advanced enormously and under the present administration advancing rapidly. America faces a choice. To me, let me be absolutely blunt. No, let me back up a sec. All of you who are pastors, Hmm. the church faces three great opponents. One, theological revisionism, theological liberalism. Going back to Schleiermacher in the 18th century, we have resisted that pretty well, all of us who are evangelicals pretty well. Hmm. Now we face number two and three. Number two is the sexual revolution. Number three is cultural Marxism. Those two both go back to the same place in Paris, the Palais Royal, from which the ideas of the French Revolution came. So if you read the architects, not just people like Marquis de Sade, but Wilhelm Reich in the 1920s, he says, we will never win, this is the sexual revolution, until we have overcome the church and parents. But the way evangelicals have caved into the sexual revolution is appalling. And now, tragically, we're seeing evangelicals caving into cultural Marxism, neo Marxism, and they just don't understand it. And I've been on Zooms this last year with pastors, and I've said to them bluntly, You have drunk the Kool-Aid, hmm. because the radical left says justice, injustice, the pastors leap up to salute, we're in favor of justice. They don't realize, though, that while we both say what is unjust, the Bible and the radical left address it in entirely different ways, and too many pastors
0: have drunk the Kool-Aid. Hmm. Can you can you address that? Can you address how does uh, the trying to re- remember exactly how you said it, how the cultural left and the Bible address justice, radically different ways. Could you address that?
1: Well, pastors should read the real stuff, not just me or Christians writing about it. The two watchwords: words, hegemony which means dominance and antagonisms. And as you know, the way they approach things is to analyze discourse You're looking for majority, minority, the oppressor, the victim. And then of course, since God is dead, and truth is dead, we're in a post-truth world, all you have left is power. So when you've identified the victim, whoever he or she is, and of course you've today got critical race studies, but it could be critical women's studies or critical fat studies or critical queer studies, goes across the board. You weaponize the victim, not as an individual precious in his or her own right, made in the image of God, but as a victim, a group, in order to weaponize them to attack the status quo. But I've got 10 problems with that in my book. Hmm. But here's the central problem. If you've only got power, you're setting up an endless power conflict, and the end of it all is only what the Romans called the peace of despotism. In other words, when you have a power that can put down all other powers so you've got no more conflict, that is authoritarianism. And let's be absolutely clear, anyone who's looked at the left, whichever revolution you take, the revolutions never succeed ever, and the oppression never ends ever. And so, for Christians to be naive about it are utterly foolish. Now, compare what I've just said with the biblical way. I love the fact the first great voices against abuse of power in history are who? The prophets. Hmm. And in the church, the great reformers like Bartolome Las Casas, William Wilberforce, John Wilman, Frederick Douglass, Booker T. Washington, and so on, Christians. What's the biblical way? Address truth to power. Call for repentance and confession. And then forgiveness. And then reconciliation. And then restoration. Now, I've just mentioned six words, single words, but unpack those. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: No wonder the gospel is good news. It's Mm -hmm. the best news ever. You restore enemies. Now back with peace with the Lord, but peace with their fellow humans, too. So let's be clear. Both the left and the church addresses injustice, but in radically different ways. And Christians who've drunk the Kool-Aid today are utterly foolish, and they're unfaithful to the gospel, and
0: they're counterproductive in what they're doing. Hmm. Could you see anything coming from the right? You know, you've mentioned the left, and and you talk about uh that several times in the book um anything from the right that would threaten the idea of freedom or or things you've just talked about of course but i don't use right and left all that much i use okay. radical
1: left right and left came from the french revolution too mm-hmm. the right where the conservatives sat on the right side of the speaker and the left where the the radicals have sat on the left side mm-hmm. i don't even think as christians we're only conservative that's wrong mm-hmm. Think for a minute. God made humans with a capacity quite different from the animals. We have memory in our own lives, and we have history over the life of humanity, so we think back. But then we have vision, and we have imagination. We can think of things that have never been, so we think forward. So the church should be both conservative always keeping alive the best of the past. And there's nothing more common in the Old Testament, remember, 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 do not forget. So we are essentially conservative, but also moving forward. We look forward to the messianic age when God will do what we can't do, and he'll bring it in finally, and the lion will die down with the lamb. But until then, we're moving towards that with more justice, more freedom, more humanity, and so on through the gospel. So we're not left or right.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Right, in the real sense of today's word, the hard right, is extremely ugly. Mm. No, we are people of faith. I love the fact that we, you could argue, that you have to say this carefully, because Americans pick up words as rhetoric, not as reality. But take revolution. It came from the Bible. Revolution used to be astronomy. Celestial bodies going round and round and going back to where they started. Where did revolution, as we understand it, come from? It wasn't the left. God creates order. Sin creates disorder. So God works into a disordered world, turning it the right way up again. So, when God turns the world upside down, he's actually turning it the right way up. Mm. So, you remember the agitators who attacked Paul in Acts 17, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here. That should be a compliment. We are turning the world upside down, but we're actually turning it the right way up. So, we are the true revolutionaries. Mm-hmm just as we are the great defenders of justice and human dignity and freedom, make no mistake about it.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. This has been great. Thank you so much uh, for your time. I do have one question that you teased earlier and you talked about how churches, specifically pastors, church leaders uh, can play a role uh, in this moment. You've got pastors and church leaders who are listening, watching this podcast. What What is that role that you see that churches and specifically pastors and church leaders, could play in this, in this moment?
1: Well, pastors have the incredible privilege of standing between the Lord and his people every weekend. In other words, pastors are the key to the reformation and revival in the Church of Christ, which we need, and leading the church forward. Now, I'm not a pastor, I'm a layman. In my lifetime, and I'm in my 70s now, I've known great preachers and pastors like John Stott, Martin Lloyd-Jones, many, many others. I know that it's a tough task today. It's an impossible task. You've got to be a super preacher, super administrator, a super counselor, and everything else too. It's almost impossible. The expectations have arisen, And the social standing has collapsed, especially with all the scandals today. But still, the pastors stand there between the Lord and his people through the word. You know, I used as a student to go, (laughs) this is not a good thing I'm saying, as a student, I'd go to John Stott's church in the morning and Martin lloyd Jones's church in the evening, the two greatest preachers I've heard in my life in Britain. You couldn't see it in the old All Souls where John Stott preached. Before he mounted the pulpit, he was prostrate on the floor before the Lord. Hmm. He never said it, but he always served the word. I was in a church, I won't mention where, in New York. The young pastor stood there with his Bible off to one side, with his hands in his pocket. He was so cocky with his ideas I was utterly appalled. Or I remember a mega church, not Saddleback, I should be careful to say, in California, where the pastor quoted Barner five times as much as he quoted the Bible. Now, when I go to Martin Lloyd, and I knew both these men afterwards very well, Martin Lloyd Jones, before he preached, spent an hour alone with the Lord. Now, his church is 100 yards from Buckingham Palace. But if the Queen had come to see him, he wouldn't have seen her. He was with the King of Kings. Hmm. He never said anything about that when he entered the pulpit, but you knew it because of the anointing he had coming from the presence of the Lord. And I long for pastors who have the fear of the Lord, who are bringing the authority of the word and speak with awe. I knew Francis Schaeffer pretty well later. He wasn't the greatest preacher, but my word, when he preached, often his inner sermon, his voice would break. He was overcome with awe at the wonder of the truth he was talking about. And I must say, I'm not terribly impressed with a lot of preaching. I actually, Washington preaching is terrific. My own pastor. And many of the other pastors I know in Washington are rather exceptions, but much of the preaching I've heard around the country, I would say is pretty poor by historical standards. Mm. But all of your pastors, what a privilege you have of bringing the word of the Lord through the spirit of the Lord to the people of the Lord. And you are the key to the reformation, revival, and the re-engagement of Christians in their callings with our culture. The
0: Lord Mm. be with you. Mm. Uh, that's a great word to to end on, uh, Oz Guinness. This has been a, a privilege. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on today. Uh, in the show notes today, we'll make sure that we've got links to uh, to the brand new book where people can pick it up. Uh, Oz, is there is there any place else where people can connect with you online or, or anything like that? Um, well, I'm overwhelmed. So.
1: <laughs> yeah, I have a I have a website, osgenus.com. Okay. There you go. I, I personally don't encourage people to get in touch with me personally because <laughs> I'm just overwhelmed.
0: I can't imagine. I can't imagine. Yeah.
1: So this as, has been great, as you probably are too, and many others. So I'm, I'm not <laughs> unique. But well, we will link to your website. I have no. I have no assistant. I mean, I know famous wow. pastors are surrounded with. You know, handlers and so on. I, I have no assistant.
0: Oh wow! Okay, all right. Well, yeah. we'll, we'll link to your website. Thank you so much. Uh, this has been great. It's been great to uh, to talk with you. Thanks for coming well, on. Privilege to be with you. Thank you. Oz Guinness, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. And for those of you who are listening, I would love to hear your responses, your reactions to today's conversations. Um, If you're a pastor, ministry leader, or even just going to a church, being a part of a church, I would love to hear how these issues are coming into play in your congregation. How are you seeing it? There's so much talk online about things like critical race theory that Oz talked about in our interview and and other things and you hear people different parts of you know people in the southern baptist convention other denominations and groups that that talk about CRT and all of these things but the examples of how those things are actually showing up in individual churches are from what I've seen in conversations that I've had, hard to find. Uh, In fact, I haven't heard or had a conversation with any pastor or church leader where these are practically showing up in their ministry. If you have examples of that, I would love to have a conversation. I would love to hear from you and how you're seeing this at play where you are. Um, Active conversations that I have are about Christian nationalism and, and what this is doing to so many people that fill so many churches and so i think it was important to have this conversation to hear oz guinness's perspective and to interact with him about this book i was so thankful for how he shared about uh the distinction between uh, christian nationalism patriotism and and several things in the podcast i would love to hear your response we're on social media you can connect with us. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we're on there. You can watch today's interview on YouTube. New episodes come out every single Tuesday. A great way to help the podcast just for more people to get in touch with us and find the podcast is just to leave a review. You can leave a rating, but if you actually write a review, that's a big deal. Helps more people find the podcast. Be super thankful if you did that. Hey, thanks for listening to the show today. We'll be back next Tuesday with another episode of the Churchology Podcast.